he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We're glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. John chapter 11 uh, is where uh, I want to direct our attention today. Uh, This is the story of Lazarus. You're going to hear echoes of the different passages of scriptures we read uh, that were read from uh, Polly and Brenda as well uh, in this passage. But this, this chapter is, I think, probably one of the richest, stor- richest stories in the Gospels. It is uh, just full of detail, full of truth, full of meaning, and just, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, well, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to his disciples, well, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walked in the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. And Jesus answered, Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Well, let us go that we may die with him. And when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. And while Mary stayed at home, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who, who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had been with Mary and seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them said, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. And he did not say this on his own, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked open, about openly among the Jews, but went from there to a town called Ephraim, in the region near the wilderness, and he remained there with the disciples. And now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, were asking one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Surely he'll not come to this festival, will he? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know, so that they might arrest him. This is the story of the raising of, of Lazarus. Jesus begins the story hearing about uh, his illness and hearing that he's sick. And his first words are, well, this illness will not end in death. This sickness will not lead to death. And that is a, a strange thing to say, a strange thing to hear. He hasn't seen him. He hasn't looked at him. It's like talking to your uh, doctor on a telehealth uh, interview, telling them what's wrong. And the doctor says, oh, you're fine. You go, wait, what? You haven't even seen me yet. What do you mean I'm fine? And uh, Jesus seems to say, oh, this illness will not end in death. And it leads us to wonder, why is Jesus saying this? And even looking back, following the story, we're going, wait, is that entirely correct? But the gospel writer of John, John the apostle here, is very, very, very good at having another way of looking at just about at a lot of different things that he says. He's often using a play on words, kind of like when we, uh, the reading in Ezekiel. I don't know if you notice in Ezekiel, but the words breath and spirit and wind were pretty interchangeable 
in there. And that, of, of course, is the way it's also used in John when he talks about the Holy Spirit and wind. Those words are synonymous. And it's up to us translating to go, wait, does he mean breath or spirit or wind? And John always has this kind of play on words. And so we're going to find out a little bit later on what he means, perhaps, when Jesus says, this illness will not end in death. And then Jesus waits for two days. And, and we don't know why he waits. It doesn't say, you know, Jesus was certain he was going to be okay, so he waited. It doesn't say whether Jesus was, uh, was busy with other miracles or teaching his disciples. It doesn't say whether he was afraid to go into Judea and had to gather up the courage. We don't know what, what, what the context is. We just know he waited two days. And this is one of those where a diagnosis was absolutely necessary to catch whatever illness Lazarus had. And so he knows his friend is sick, and all he says is that this is so the Son of Man might be glorified. This is going to bring about God's glory. And not in a vague sense, not in like this, as if we're going to say, oh, let's just hope and see how God gets the glory, or not just in a, like, whatever happens, we're going to end up glorifying God. When he says God's going to get the glory, I have a, I have a suspicion that he knows and somehow God is going to work out of whatever happens to show that the Lord has victory over and power over illness. And even if this illness leads to death, that the Lord has power and victory over even illness that leads to death. That his way of understanding this is the God who created the universe. And even though we have fallen, and even though there is sin, and that sin leads to death, and even though we are mortal, and there, there is a life... To, uh, terms for all of us that we just only have so many years. But yet, God didn't just create the world and then go, okay, so be it, that's it. And, and death just seems to be the final word for everyone. No, our Creator God has power and victory even over death in His creation. This entire passage is a foreshadowing of the story of God's victory over death, a victory that is on the horizon. On a personal note, when I see, whenever I hear this story, I'm encouraged because I find the story of this waiting often relatable. Oftentimes we come to the Lord with a question or there's an illness, there's a prayer request, there's a terminal problem. And it seems like in asking God that he tarries just a little bit. He waits just a little too long sometimes, and we don't understand why. And we don't understand why it seemed like God was present one time when we prayed, but not the next time. And the glorification of God, the, his, his answer that we were looking for, isn't present in that moment. Indeed, it seems sometimes, despite how much we might have, to, might have prayed, the glorification has to wait until the resurrection and we don't understand the hows and the whys of God's activity or his inactivity. And so I can relate well with Mary and Martha who are like, Jesus, if only you would have answered sooner. If only you would have moved. If only you would have answered our prayer request in this moment. Finally, Jesus does decide to go and he tells his disciples, hey, it's time to go to Judea. It's time to act. But the disciples warn him. He warns them that, hey, the last time you were there, you were basically chased out. If you go again, you're going to be greeted with stones. And so they warn him against this. This is dangerous territory. When Jesus says, 
than that those who walk by the day don't stumble because they see the light of the world. This is John reminding us what he said at the very beginning of the chapter. The light of the world has come into the world. Jesus is our light. He's making a significant theological claim here. Jesus is the light of the world, and as long as they are following him, they're not going to stumble, they're not going to falter, they're not going to fail. But if they follow their fears, oh no, they might stone him. Oh no, the fears are for the night, and the night can be scary. If you're out in the wilderness at night, the sun goes down, you might lose your path on the trail. The wild animals start to come out. You start, seeing, you start seeing pairs of eyes everywhere, and it gets kind of scary. If you're walking alone at night in the city, you start looking over your shoulder. Are there stalkers nearby? Is there a villain following me? When I was a teen, we had a sleepover in, in our church. In our church in Milwaukee, uh, uh, we, had a, we had a sleepover there, and we did this hide-and-seek game. We called it sardines. It was basically reverse hide-and-seek. One person hid, everyone looked for them. Once you found them, you crammed in with them into that hiding place, which is why it was called sardines. We were all crammed in, like into a little tin. And so that was our game, and we were doing that. And I remember one time we were playing, and I was one of the last people. I couldn't find where they had hidden, where they were all crammed. And I'm walking alone in the dark church, and all the big beams of the church were creaking in the wind, and it was scary, and I was certain that someone was going to jump out and get me. I was just hoping that whoever it was, it would be them getting tired of waiting for me. <laughs> but I was so scared. Fear is for the night. And Jesus says, if you walk by the light and follow Jesus, you will not falter, you will not stumble, you won't fall. This is Jesus calling us to speak, the claim of, uh, to speak of His claim in our life, regardless of fears that we might have. And indeed, our world is often compelling us to try to live according to the fears that they want us to hold on to. But Jesus is calling to live faithfully to what God has called them, no matter what might happen. And so He says to them, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, they're probably thinking, well, okay, if he's sleeping, just let him sleep. Like, uh, he's, he's going to wake up on his own. Uh, Jen asked me that question about uh, Eric this week. Eric is home for spring break, uh, going back this weekend to college. And uh, as a college student, he's been doing the whole, I'm going to stay up till 12 or 1 or 2 or 3 or as late as I want and sleep in as long as I want. Well, well of course, Alex gets excited that his brother's there. And he wakes up in the morning and like, hey, I get to go say hi to my brother. And so, uh, and, and Eric's like, man, I just want to sleep, but... He missed so many hours of opportunity to sleep. <laughs> but, and, uh, and so, like, Alex is just playing the role of Jesus here. <laughs> He's just going to wake him up. No, so Lazarus is asleep, and, and they said, just let him sleep, the disciples say. It's okay, let him sleep. He's been sick. And, of course, Jesus uses this phrase to say, no, no, you don't understand. He's dead. But in the light of the resurrection, now this phrase, he is asleep, will be a phrase used and borrowed by Paul throughout the epistles to speak about those who believe in Jesus Christ. That though they are dead in light of the resurrection, in the hope and the future of life eternal with our God, this is but sleep. That even dry bones can awaken again. And so Thomas says, okay, 
Fine, we're going to Judea, where they're going to stone us. Let's go. We're going to die with him. I, I think of that as exasperation. All right, I give up, Jesus. Fine, we follow you this long. We're going to follow you again, and hopefully things go right. But I'm telling you, you're going to die. They're going to stone you. It's over with. Now, now it could be that he's not exasperated. It could be that he's gung-ho, right? It could be, all right, here we go, guys. Saddle up. We're going ride or die. Like, just like, <laughs> we're, going, we're going to Judea. But I just, I just feel like Thomas is just a little bit kind of, I don't know about this. But like I said before, the Gospel of John loves its double meanings. Earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, when he was talking to Nicodemus about being born again, it's with the word spirit and wind. Uh, after that, the tail end of that chapter, even talking about the, uh, uh, Jesus being lifted up or exalted, two words that mean the same thing, but he's also thinking of being lifted up on the cross. The Gospel of John loves to have these kind of, there's a hidden meaning underneath the first meaning. Let us go that we may die with him. Thomas fully intends and thinks that he's going to be stoned to death. And Jesus, in his ministry, often invited his disciples to follow him in faithfulness no matter where that leads. In fact, at one point in time, he's going to say to his disciples, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And we know when Jesus is going to be crucified that he's going to carry his cross to Golgotha where he is going to be crucified. And Jesus takes up his cross and is crucified for us. And he calls upon his disciples to do the same thing, to take up their cross, which is their instrument of death. And he calls us to follow him even when obedience to Christ is dangerous. And so when Thomas says, let us go that we may die with him, this is a call upon his disciples that we follow Jesus to die with him. To go faithfully no matter where that leads and how dangerous that road might be. Every Sunday, we make a walk. We make a short sanctuary pilgrimage to the emblems of Jesus' body. It is a walk that takes us to his death. So we call it flesh broken and blood poured out. Every week, we practice walking to dangerous Judea where stones could be hurled. To, 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 to say this is to say that the call of discipleship is a call that puts our life before God. And it's not to throw it away. It's not to say life is unimportant. It's not to say life sacrifice should just be expected and thrown away quickly. But this, this doesn't welcome a kind of like martyrdom syndrome or, or even worse, an imposition on others to do sacrifices that you don't want to do. Life is very important to Jesus. Life, in fact, is so important that God won't let us hold on to our life at the expense of another's. Life is so important that God calls us to live well in the service and love of one another rather than in the violence so often imposed by the lifting up of our own needs, our own securities, above those around us. And it's because of this importance of life and life so needlessly lost that Jesus mourns his friend Lazarus, weeps when he dies so needlessly to this illness. This life that has gone to illness, a life that succumbs because of the consequences of the fall, because of mortality in this life. And so Jesus is faced with that very real sorrow.
And with that, he, uh, he goes before the tomb of Lazarus. And he calls Mary and Martha and he says, hey, let's, show me where he is. And he goes to that tomb and, and they, I think they have a suspicion of what's going to happen. There's a miracle that's going to, something's going to happen. And when Jesus says, roll that stone away, Mary reminds him, now hold on a moment. You know open caskets can't be after three days. Not unless they've been embalmed. It is going to be ugly in there. But he tells him to roll that stone away because Jesus knows that in the light of God's promise and God's grace, he is not dead, he is asleep. And Lazarus comes forth at Jesus' beckoning. And in this story we find in Lazarus, this, this kind of unreal, amazing kind of what is happening here in this story, we find that the hope of the resurrection and the promise of God's grace in our life is for each and every one of us and for us while we are living out life today. And this kind of good news, this kind of understanding that we don't have to live in fear, we can live with our life given over to God, knowing that no matter what happens, it is in the Creator's hand and He holds that future for us. That no matter what someone does to someone else or what befalls someone else because of illness or anything else, that God still has the final word and everyone is getting excited to hear what Jesus is able to do. And he's gathering more and more crowds. And the leaders start to get nervous. Caiaphas, the high priest, says as much, if we don't stop him, It is better for one man to die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed, he warns. We have to put an end to this. Again, this is John, the gospel writer, recording this with that double meaning. Of course, they're afraid of what's going to happen if they don't get rid of Jesus. They don't get rid of Jesus. Their nation could be destroyed. The temple could be destroyed. There have been too many attempts at insurrection. There have been too many times people have been seen as a lord when their only lord is supposed to be Caesar. There's been too many where revolution is met with a swift hand and people have been destroyed and their young sons have been destroyed or inscripted into military service and they are just worried that if this continues on, they're going to have another moment where things get absolutely destroyed in their homes. If you want some references at think Arab Spring just a decade ago, what Syria did with those who revolted. Think even the Revolutionary War when uh, England said, hey, you, you, I'm going to tell you who you better call as Lord or King. Or even now Ukraine versus Russia. If you don't swear fealty to the appropriate ruler or Lord, then they will be crushed without mercy. When Caiaphas says, This man has to die. He is thinking, let's keep things as quiet and calm as we can before Caesar finds out. Because if he finds out, it's going to get ugly. He doesn't have to know about this man's growing popularity. In fact, we can get rid of him soon. We don't need Rome's legions coming through and slaughtering us. And so they devise a plan. There's a holy day coming up. And there are often pilgrimages to Jerusalem for this holy day. It's a holy day which is called Passover, a day in which they remember the Lord in His mercy delivered them from slavery. An angel of vengeance passed over them when it was slaughtering the masses in Egypt. Every year they would remember this by slaughtering a lamb. 
and remembering that God had delivered them from slavery, had saved them, and this lamb was slaughtered to remember this Passover. And it signified the grace of God that passes over those who might otherwise be judged, but also signified the liberating and sanctifying power of God for their people right now, as their sacrifices often did to help them connect with and join with God. So this one in this holiday was remembering, remembering the liberating and holy power of God. And Jesus will be someone who, according to the high priest, will die in order to save a nation. Indeed, it will save their people scattered throughout the known world. This was often, indeed, what the sacrificial system hinted at, a sacrifice to unite their nation with God. The nation's desire to draw closer to God, so sacrifices would be made for God to look over, forgive their trespasses, and help them unite to a holy purpose. But of course, here's that double meaning again for the Gospel of John. Jesus will not just die as the leader's scapegoat, as the one who kind of takes on, dies just so they can kind of hide what's, what, what God is doing in his life. But also, he will become the representative Paschal or Passover lamb for the people. This story helps to give us some background to understanding what is happening to Jesus on the cross. If we borrow the sacrificial language of the Passover, as John is inviting us to do, as Jesus is going to be lured or or going to be looked out for during this Passover, then he is inviting us to interpret it in the lens of the Passover, but also in the lens of what is happening with the resurrection of Lazarus, the defeat over death. And this passage to look at Jesus as the Passover lamb is to to look at it in the context of God's power over death. This passage in no way uh, uh, looks at God as angry at Lazarus or as Lazarus as particularly sinful or that Lazarus owed a debt to God. That is a development, that this idea that oftentimes uh, Jesus' death on the cross was, was to overcome an angry God. That's a development of medieval theology, meant to scare people to bring more money into the church, back when the church held more power than it should have. When John equates the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to the Passover and the celebration of God's liberation, he's inviting us to see that through Jesus... There is deliverance from death. There is the hope of resurrection. And that this hope has real world implications for how we're called to live out our faithfulness to Jesus. Even in the face of fear. Even on the road to whatever our Judea might look like. The sacrifice of Jesus is the story of the Lord's triumph over death. Death which is the greatest enslaver of us all. There is liberation from that which steals our last breath and imprisons us in the ground, what they often called Sheol. When we celebrate in a few weeks on Easter Sunday, in just a couple weeks, we're going to shout, He's risen indeed to every call of He is risen. We are celebrating when we say that the liberating power of God that defeats death defeats the sin that so often leads to death, that God empowers us us today 
to live free from sin, to live devoted to God, empowers us to live faithfully even along tough roads and tough journeys. No wonder Jesus is able then finally is able to say at the very beginning of the story, this illness will not end in death. Because even though it looks that way, the truth of the matter is in God, we find indeed liberation from the worst that can hold us back. And what greater enslaver is there than death? But even Paul, in recognizing this promise from Jesus, ends up saying, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? There is a new story, a new future, and a new chapter for all who have come to know Jesus Christ. And so we will be invited to walk that journey together again today when we come forward to receive these emblems of the broken body, the shed blood, remembering that we are always on a journey of faithfulness to our God, no matter what might happen, no matter what stones might fall our way. If we follow the light of Jesus, we will not stumble on those stones. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful passage, this reminder of our hope, this reminder that uh, the resurrection is a promise for each and every one of us and that this is not just something we look forward to that might happen someday as Mary said to Jesus, Lord, we know he'll be resurrected someday, but the power and the fruitfulness of your Spirit's work begins in us today that we can be freed from the power of sin in our life, that we can be opened up to love boldly our neighbors and those around us, to value the life of another as much as we might our own, because that is how you have valued each and every one you have created. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the hope and the promise we have in Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the spirit you breathe out into your church today that today we can experience victory. We can experience foreshadowing of what eternity might look like, knowing that we can be freed from that which comes against us now. Thank you for your hope. Thank you for your grace. We praise you and we honor you today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve him today.